in 2020, we had a legislative race that literally came to less than one half of 1% um, between the two candidates. And so our laws allow us before we certify in that case, since it was all contained within Greene County, we could do a hand count before we certify that result. I called the candidates, I called the party chairs, we invited the public, everyone got to come and see and watch if they had questions about that before we certified that. And that's what brings confidence to voters, is letting them be part of that process. I mean, that's critical. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. On our podcast, we have Shane Scholler, uh, and he is the county clerk, the chief election official of Greene County, Missouri, which is Springfield, Missouri. And he has um, been in that job for a number of years. He's in his second term. Um, I know him, third term. I, I know him through his role uh, with the Election Assistance Commission on our board of advisors. Uh, he also serves on a number of other boards, which we might have time to go into. But I'm very impressed with his resume. First of all, he has also served in the Missouri legislature in the House of Representatives, and he made it to leadership, including a, t- a time as the speaker. And so he brings a wealth of knowledge to the election community. And welcome to our show. Hey, thanks, Don. I appreciate it. So you have um, a number of uh, jobs in your background, including now you're the president of the Association uh, of Clerks in Missouri. Past president. Past president. Yes. Uh, And you, um, so you have the luxury of sort of speaking with them a lot about what's on their mind as we approach 2024. And, you know, so the voters are thinking about it. How are election officials approaching 2024 um, as we, you know, as we're looking forward to the presidential election year? Well, for example, just this last year, we got a number of new clerks that came from the 2022 election. And so one of the roles we've had in association is that we wanted to make sure that they are ready. And so we have a training and mentoring committee. And so during my time as president of the association, one of the things we really want to do is revitalize that committee. And so we have put together um, working sessions where they're now using Zoom regularly. They're meeting regularly, whereas when I became a county clerk, we had one training session before we became county clerk, and that was pretty much your training, except when you went to the annual training um, each year towards the end of the year. And so we understand the importance of helping them understand the rules, because I think you understand this, Don. A lot of folks don't realize that elections aren't the only thing that most county clerks do across the state. Uh, for example, we do payroll in our office for the county. We do tax administration. We do um, licensing notaries. Um, we also do record retention. Um, and so there's a lot of duties that a county clerk oversees. And so we want to make sure that they're ready for each of those roles. But especially elections is our most public role, that and voter registration. And so we want to have them prepared and ready as we get ready for 2024. So a lot of professionalism and training. Yes. Getting ready for the election process. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, one of the issues that we face is uh, voting machines, you know, sort of um, do we trust the voting machines? How can the public trust the voting machines? Now, you play a special role uh, advising the EAC. You actually serve on the Technical Guidelines Development Committee. Uh, you've been appointed to that through your, your um, service on the Board of Advisors. Um, just talk to me a little bit about how you address concerns in your community on the voting machines, for example. And, and you know, you obviously play a special role in the development of standards and, mm-hmm. and um, 
the testing of that, but how do you discern that? How do you sort of uh, communicate that to the public? Well, what I let them know is that, you know, when I ran for office um, back in 2014, one of the things I talked about, which was very popular then, was voting on the Internet. And I say, you know, I didn't trust that process because I understand there can be things that would happen that would take away legitimacy of the vote. And so when I talk about machines, I say, as an election authority, we don't trust the machines. We understand human error could um, be there, so that's why we pre-test our election equipment. We have... um, you know, our bipartisan teams come together, they take that test deck, they hand count it first, then they test it to make sure that's working correctly. And then we do the very same thing after the election, and then we do a manual count. And again, all that's randomized. Um, on the night of the election, we take the no less than 5% of all the precincts um, that were um, being voted in on the day of the election and so we draw them randomly and then we have um, races that we are literally randomly drawing from um, literally um, a statewide president and or for example u.s senate or in the statewide offices and then we do a legislative whether it's for um, congress and or for the missouri general assembly then we also do a statewide issue um, and then we also do one for the county and then we do um, one for the judiciary so whether it's for the local court the um the appellate court or for the Missouri Supreme Court. All of those are hand counted by teams just to verify that the machine is working correctly. And so, and then we invite the public to be part of that process. It's all open to the public. Uh, matter of fact, in 2020, we had a legislative race that literally came to less than one half of 1% um, between the two candidates. And so, our laws allow us before we certify in that case, since it was all contained within Greene County, we could do a hand count before we certify that result. I called the candidates, I called the party chairs, we invited the public, everyone got to come and see and watch if they had questions about that before we certified that. And that's what brings confidence to voters, is letting them be part of that process. I mean, that's critical. So so let me ask you, um, you have, you've been a legislator and you're now running elections, uh, and you've, you've emphasized some issues that relate to election integrity, and, I, and I, those, those issues can be controversial politically. They, they can sometimes be people worried that we aren't doing enough and that the system mm-hmm. isn't um, to be trusted. There's some people who think some of these election integrity matters might uh, deter voters from voting, bring things down. So there, there are a number of these. And so maybe we could start with um, uh, this issue of paper ballots. You mentioned yes. machines that, that are being, but that there's an issue with paper. But what, what would you tell um the world, why it is important that we have paper ballots, what what our system is, and how would you explain it both to those who might be questioning the integrity of of the system and 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 those who you know maybe think that's not so necessary because we we could we could go all electronic, right? Well, and the thing I like about a paper ballot is that you can physically touch it, you can physically see it. Of course, we have our both judges, bipartisan team, they initial that ballot so we know that it was issued to the voter. And then that way, if there's ever a question about the outcome of the election in Missouri, if you have a question about the outcome of an election and you've got enough evidence, you can go to a judge 30 days after certification of the result, and you can challenge that. The judge says, you know what, I think there's enough irregularity here. Let's do a recount. Um, or if it's less than one-half of 1%, um, we just did one because we shared a school district election with two other counties, and so they had to go before the court before we could do that. Um, the paper ballot, the actual individuals who are doing that hand counting can see that and the problem I have with um, anytime you would vote on anything that's electronic 
is you're never going to get to see the physical evidence of that. And I think that's where I've told people, even if you knew 100%, for example, we talk about blockchain technology, even if you know 100% that that is foolproof, I think we have enough evidence to know that in the person in the public, there could be enough doubt put in their mind that that is not um, trustworthy, that I don't think we want to put all of our eggs in that one basket when we can still say we've got a paper ballot that if you have questions, people can physically see, touch, and count. And I think that's always important when it comes to credibility of elections. And broadly speaking, across the country, we have moved away from systems that were were just electronic without, yes. and and there are still a few places left, but but I'm not sure of Missouri, the whole of Missouri, but most most of mm-hmm. your machines throughout the state uh, and your county are going to be uh, voters casting a ballot on a paper ballot, correct, which can be scanned and counted by a mm-hmm. machine, but then there's the availability of that paper, that original ballot cast by the voter. If, poss- if you need a recount, if you need to Correct. go back to the original. Is that fair exactly. to say? Exactly. Exactly. That's You couldn't have said it better. Yeah. So I wanted to follow up. You um, you actually are in Washington, D.C. for the Local Leadership Council. Yes. Uh, it's a sort of a council of, of local election officials from across the country. And, uh, you know, and coming over here, we actually discussed a little bit about how do we profile these folks? How do we sort of personalize mm-hmm. them in the minds of the public? I'm, you know, you actually work with a number of these officials in Missouri and now nationwide. Tell me, what is the, what's the normal local election official? Why should the American people trust a local election official? Well, just like the average American, you know, we get up in the morning, we're trying to make sure we're getting our kids to school, we're trying to make sure we're getting just enough breakfast to be able to make it into the office, to be able to make the day, we're trying to make sure we get our coffee, um, we go in, we've got different challenges that we're meeting, um, and we're there to serve the public and make sure that when they come in, they have confidence, and, you know, when I think about, you know, for example, being elected office, I always tell folks that um, are elected like myself, I'm just grateful when they remember my name. You know, because a lot of people have a lot on their plate. They have a lot to take place. And, you know, we go to church. We're part, I'm part of the different civic organizations. You know, we're in the communities. Our kids are in the schools. And so if there's a lack of trust, just go in there and introduce yourself to your local election official and say, hey, I just want to meet you, get to know you. I mean, that's one of the things I love about elections is it really, when you think about we the people, it was literally in our Constitution form that we, the people, would be part of elections because, you know, there's no longer a monarchy that's making decisions in terms of who's going to be the person that's leading you at the local, state, or national level. It's the people that are part of that process. And so when you see people elected to the school board or to city council or to the state legislature or to Congress, you realize that we came together and we were essentially trusted with that um responsibility to make sure that that outcome is accurate and fair. And so that's what I talk about is that we're all part of that process because I'm going to be in one place at one time. But when the people come together, and what I love is you literally see Republicans and Democrats that become friends through this process. And that's where you begin to kind of take away the labels and you begin to realize that we're humans and humans do make mistakes. That happens in elections. And occasionally, unfortunately, we know that there are people who have tried to insert fraud in elections, but that's why the people come together so we can catch that. So let me ask you, you mentioned you're happy if people know your name, but I, but I bet uh, in your time in elections um, that you're a more well-known figure today than you were 10 years ago. Across the country, people are focusing more on mm-hmm. on their 
people who are running local elections, people who are running state elections. And in many ways, there, there's, there are good things about that. Um, and right. so I'd, I'd like you to discuss sort of the balance between uh, transparency and observation and the average person or the parties or other people being able to look at the election and, and monitor it from as, as and, and then potentially the lines that you don't want to go over. Mm-hmm. Um, stories we hear about uh, election officials who are, are getting threats or, or people maybe who are observers who go a little too far and, and more disruptive of the election. What's what's the proper balance? How, how do you explain how you run elections and how you want to have transparency, open sea, oversight, observers, and yet you, you want to draw the line to make sure that election is run without interference? Absolutely. Well, and as I tell voters back home, I want you to know everything about an election except how your neighbor votes. You know, that's the transparency side of it. But in that process, you know, our state um, says that you go through your central committee. That's what you're ideally supposed to do if you want to be an election judge. I know some other states call them poll workers, but in our state they're called election judges. And you go to your county chair and you say, I'd like to do that. And so we work with our central committees, our county chairs, and that's something that I continually encourage them to be a part of because we do have to go out and get election judges to be part of the process. But they're literally within the statute if someone becomes disruptive. We can remove them from that process. There's also the opportunity to be a challenger and a watcher. And so a challenger is there in our polling locations say, I'm not sure that that election law was followed properly. They can then challenge the election judges, not the voters, in terms of that issue. And then we can have watchers, people that can be there to make sure that there's nothing that is improper in terms of the ballots that are being cast. They can literally be there if the polls closed to watch the process. And that's where I invite people. If we've got enough election judges, then go to your central committee chair and say, hey, I'd like to be a challenger or a watcher. And that's how you get engaged in that process and be able to watch and observe what is happening. And the other thing I really encourage folks is come in with an open mind to learn. Um, because there's a lot of things I know that I didn't know before I became an election official, but you get to watch and see and understand the process. And then you can become more informed because unfortunately there's a lot of things that happen on social media that are not accurate when it comes to elections. And sometimes they may be accurate to one state, but they're not accurate to another state. Like for example, one challenge we had back in 2020 was there was a rumor on the internet saying, if you see a mark on your ballot, it's no longer valid. Well, in our state, if both election judges don't initial that, then that ballot, if we don't have an accurate reconciliation in terms of people checked in and the number of ballots cast, we would probably at that moment say that ballot may not have been issued to the voter. And so we want our election judges, you know, marking that ballot with their initials so that we know that that um, ballot was properly, you know, given to the voter. Let me go back to this this uh, set of issues, again, related to voter integrity. Um, yeah. And again, uh issues that you think will help reassure people worried about the integrity of elections, but also worries that maybe those procedures might dampen voter turnout or, or, or access. Um, one hot button issue is voter ID or photo mm-hmm. ID. Yes. Um, tell us from, especially from an election administrator perspective, you are actually having to run and implement this mm-hmm. system, some of it obviously done at the state level, but what kind of system you're, you're pro photo ID, uh, yes. but but what, what kind of system can you would you want to put in place that assures people this is a good thing that helps with the integrity of elections, mm-hmm. but on the other hand has certain features and limits that, that will not drive people away from the polls in an unnecessary way? Understood. Well, and that's the great thing about the photo ID law that we have in our state, of course. Um, 
when I was in the legislature, I sponsored photo ID legislation. And so in our state, um, you can either have a state um, ID like your driver's license, or you can have your federal ID like a passport, for example, um, or military ID. And so when the voter comes in, they check in with that. Um, if they don't have that, then they get the opportunity to cast what we call a provisional ballot. And the provisional ballot is treated just the same as a ballot that's sent in to us by mail. All we're doing at the end of the election is if they don't come back and show their ID before the end of the day, um, the night of the election, then we take that um, outer envelope, we look at their signature, compare it to what they have in terms of their voter registration file, and then that's how we count that ballot. And when we went back and looked in terms of ballots that were cast provisionally because they didn't have their proper ID just about a year ago, I think we only found like two instances where the ballot did not count because the signature did not match. So we have a very high rate in terms of the ballots being accepted, just like we do when a ballot is sent in by mail. So, Mr. Scholler, so you know you were a former legislator, in fact, mm -hmm. in leadership. I, you know, one of the issues that election administrators face is funding, and yes. as we've heard the last couple of days here in Washington D.C., is they often feel that they're understaffed, under-resourced. Yeah. Uh, and it's really sort of uh, across the board. So I guess the question really for you is, how important is adequate funding? And then second, you know, in that debate from a state budget or a federal budget, how do, you, how do we do a better job of advocating for, for more resources? Because, you know, election officials just feel that they're not getting the resources they need. Right. Well, and that's where I think elections are collaborative. We need to collaborate with the federal, state, and local. And so every entity, because we're all on the ballot sometime, need to be coming together to help fund those elections. And so um, up until just a couple of years ago, um, our state legislature did not fund an election unless it was a solely a state election. So anytime we had a federal election because we had candidate seats in the office, the state legislature was not funding that. That finally got changed. Um, Secretary Ashcroft helped lead that, and I was part of that effort to get that done. Um, and then one of the challenges we had in 2020 was that funding was zeroed out because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't have that funding. Of course, our cost increased. And one of the things we had to do during um, 2020 was we had to increase what we paid our election judges. And so one of the biggest costs of elections is making sure you can adequately pay the people who come to be part of the process. And so when you think about funding, you want to make sure you've got enough funding to be able to appeal to folks to say, if you take a day off, we're going to compensate you enough that you can justify that in terms of being away from your job that day when you come to serve as an election judge. Of course, it's a service. But again, people are trying to pay the bills, as I mentioned earlier. And so you've got to have that funding. Then you also want to make sure that you've got good functioning election equipment. And so um, you don't want equipment that after a period of time is no longer working and has issues. And so you begin to see the complexity of that in terms of the funding. And you realize, you know, local government doesn't necessarily have enough funding because they're taking care of public safety and roads. And so when we go to meet with our commission, um, you know, they're thinking about those issues and so they can help with the funding. But again, um, you also want your partner at the state level being part of that process and then at the federal level as well. And I think when you have that, then you have a much better opportunity to have a well-worn election. I kind of used reference that when I was a kid, um, uh, my parents had a Chevette, and the Chevette got us where we needed to be, but it wasn't very comfortable in the hot summers. But it was kind of nice to maybe be in a Chevy or possibly a Buick, and I think elections are the same way. 
if we want to minimally fund elections, we'll get minimum, I think, results in terms of what the public perception is of the election. But when we have proper funding, then we can do the things that make sure we're having good election equipment, we're paying to have enough election judges there to um, watch the process, and we can do all the things that are necessary that when the public comes in, they have confidence that the election is being well run. I hope that the the increased scrutiny will result in more funding, but uh, yes. I'm a little bit hesitant to <laughs> <laughs> with that hope. Can, um, can I follow up? Just a, two, yeah. two things that I think people will ask about this is um, to the extent there's federal funding, and we've had sort of sporadic federal funding, not regular, uh, mm-hmm. after after 2000 and uh, several several more batches recently. Um, how do how does a local election official think about the benefits of potential funding, but also the types of strings that would be attached? So so where do you stand on that? And then another issue that became somewhat controversial is this issue of private funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the, in the 2020 election uh, run under COVID, there was a, a larger amount of private funding. Um, and, and some people, some states after the fact say, well, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't do that at all. Or maybe mm-hmm. it should be in certain circumstances. What do, you, what do you think about those two issues? Well, and, you know, for example, when it comes to your election equipment, a lot of um, voters don't realize we have to have the accessible voting equipment. So if someone can't fill out a regular paper ballot, they have the opportunity to use that equipment. Well, that's not inexpensive. Of course, your tabulation equipment's not expensive. Um, prior to 2000, I'm sure both of you recall this, um, when you tabulated results, it was done at the county courthouse. And so you would drop your ballot into the box, then all those boxes would be taken back and they'd be tabulated in the night. After 2000, there was a desire for voters to be able to cast that ballot into the machine. Well, you begin to see when you have election equipment all across your county, your costs are going up considerably. Because people, if for example, they overvote, meaning they voted for more than the selections that they were allowed, the machine's going to tell the voter, you know what, you double voted there, do you want a chance to go ahead and cast a new ballot so you get to spoil that ballot and get a new one? That really didn't happen prior to 2000, as both of you know. And so there are some increased that costs that came with that. But technology is like all technology. After a period of time, it's not going to function properly. So you have a shelf life, hopefully, of about 15 years, depending on how much you use it. It may be closer to 10. And so those are important things to keep in mind. And then just the cost of living, for example, you know, manpower is a huge part of elections. So we have to have the proper funding for that. And my goal is never to use any type of private funding. But in 2020, we did that in Greene County. The Center for Tech and Civic Life offered that to every county across the state. Every election jurisdiction had the opportunity for that. And we did that. And there was a lot of questions about that um, because there was concerns that potentially it was used improperly in some states in terms of to drive up the vote by mail. Well, in Greene County, we used it for election equipment. And one of the things was just pins. The pins, because people, literally because of the concerns about COVID, when they voted, they kept their pin and it went with them. And so there was a considerable cost that went into that. And then we got additional election equipment for that. And as I mentioned earlier, we had to increase the pay. And so our county would have went into deficit spending because the legislature at that time had zeroed out the funding for elections. And then we got one round of funding from the federal government. Uh, That was earlier in the year but it was not enough to be able to get us through to the November general election. And so when I testified before the Missouri General Assembly, I said, if we have the proper amount of federal, state, and local funding, 
we never have to worry about getting private um, do, um, private funding from any of these entities that would want to do that. And so that's my encouragement to people that are watching that is encourage your legislators to make sure that they're doing their part to make sure elections are properly funded. And then we don't have to worry about um, private organizations coming in and offering funding like we saw in 2020. So um, to return a little bit to some of these issues, these integrity access issues, uh, voting by mail has become a bigger phenomenon yes. across the country and has probably become a little more controversial in the last uh, couple of elections. Uh, Missouri is a state that uh, every state offers some form of, mm -hmm. of voting by mail, but Missouri is a state that is not um, does not emphasize that as much as some. It's, there's some states that vote almost exclusively by mail. Um, what would you say about the proper role of voting by mail? How much there should be? What under what circumstances? But then also maybe take a take a peek at some of the uh, controversies, those related to checking signatures to to. Mm -hmm. uh, assure people that there's some security and, and integrity in mm -hmm. the types of votes they're cast. Uh, the questions of so-called ballot harvesting, where you where you might take a ballot from a voter and bring it back in a third party, or drop boxes, which has also mm -hmm. become a little bit of a hot button issue. What do you, what do you what would you say about the role of, of voting by mail and the process that you think works well in Missouri or you'd like to see right. that deals with those issues? Well, and really, that was the great thing about 2020 was, of course, we saw our voting by mail increase considerably. For example, in 2016, my first presidential election, we had about 10,000 people voted by mail or voted before the election. About 7,000 of those people voted in person. About 3,000 of those came by mail. Then suddenly, you go to 2020, we have over 30,000 that didn't end up voting before the day of the election, and over half voted by mail and about half voted in person before the election. And that's when you begin to realize that you have to be um, prepared from an administrative side to be able to handle that burden of ballots that are coming back in um, through the mail system. And of course, I'm a little bit biased. When I was in college, I uh, lived about, oh, a little over an hour from where I grew up at. I would go home the night before the election, sleep at home, and then go in and vote in person because I was always worried the post office might lose my ballot and I wanted my vote to count. So I always encourage voters, if you can vote in person, I call that the VIP model, vote in person. That's the best model that you have because then you have assurance you get to see that ballot actually you know, cast. And so Missouri, we now have two-week no-excuse voting. You don't have to sh um, have an excuse to do that. You just come, show your ID, then you get the opportunity to be able to cast your ballot in person. But for anyone that's military, overseas, or someone who physically cannot come and cast their ballot that day, we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to be able to vote as well. And so you want to make sure there's always that opportunity to vote by mail. But I think we want to minimize it in terms of people one, get to be able to cast a ballot in person, but two, the other challenge we have is that if everyone's voting by mail, one of the things we see in polling locations is voters being directed in terms of how to vote, sometimes by a family member, sometimes by a friend. One of the things I do get concerned about is if everyone's voting at home, you would not be able to protect a person potentially from being coerced or having their ballot filled out without really them making the selections on who they want to vote for. I think when you have it in public light of day, you minimize that. And so I think those are things we have to balance. We want to make sure that people can't come to the polling location day election. Let's keep it open for them. But let's also make sure that um, we 
do everything as much as we can in public. And of course, when you vote, it's still in secret. You know when you're polling location, but you're still doing it there without the interference of coercion. And then what about signature check? Uh, third yes. parties, third parties going to voters and drop boxes. You don't absolutely. Have to, uh, well, and that was one of the things that 2020 showed us is that in Missouri, our legislature out loud drop um, boxes. And what I told people is. As an election official, that's one more liability I have if I have a drop box. So if we don't have drop boxes, I don't have to worry about that. We still have the post office. They can still drop them on the post office. Of course, the drop box, you know, it took away that time. It would go through the mail system to come to your office. But you still have that opportunity. Of course, you know, voter can come to the courthouse and drop them off. Um, in terms of signatures, um, in Missouri, one of the things I talk about is we need to put it in our state law that we have to verify the signature. It is a best practice across our state, our election boards and county election officials across the state do check the signature, but I would like to see that actually codified into our state law. I think that's important. And so I think those are issues that, you know, really I, I saw 2020 as a blessing because not only did I see it from the vote by mail, it helped us improve our chain of custody procedures, the forms we had. We really learned a lot from 2020 that has helped us improve how we do elections in Greene County and also look and see, you know what, I think I would prefer, you know, this model over that model. Of course, some states have a different model and that works for them. And so I'm not going to criticize them for the model they have, but I certainly like what we do in Missouri because I think it works and works well. I think I'd like to ask you a few questions about yourself. Um, Yeah. How did you get into elections? And, uh, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that you had in your pre-election self? Obviously, as a legislator, uh, you probably have an interesting story. But what what is your, um, you know, how did you get into elections? Well, you know, honestly, um, I'll never forget election night 2000 when we all got home and we didn't know who was going to be our president, you know, the night of that election. Mm -hmm. Um, In Missouri, we had a challenge that night in that um, in the city of St. Louis, the polls were held open an additional three hours until 10 o'clock because they said that not enough voters were able to cast their ballot. So a federal judge allowed voters to be able to continue casting their ballot. And uh, that next year, I went to work for then Secretary of State Matt Blunt. And uh, my wife was just starting law school. And so we um, actually at that time, we're not married, got married in June of that year. But I moved up to Jefferson City and began to work in that office. And my one of my first opportunities in the office was we went and observed the city of St. Louis elections. And I thought that was unusual because, you know, you think about a lot of times we'll send teams to observe elections overseas. Here we were doing that right in our own state, in our backyard. And that's when you begin to realize how critical it is that people have confidence in their elections. And that's where my passion began um, in terms of seeing that process, being part of that process and watching what took place at the local level. And so um, then I had the opportunity again to be able to serve in the legislature and ran for Secretary of State in 2012 because my passion um, narrowly lost in in the general. Um, And then the opportunity um, came in Greene County. Our local election official, he'd been there 27 years, which is struck off. He decided um, that he was gonna retire. And so that's when I ran for the role of county clerk and really, one of the biggest things that your pre-election self learns when you become a county clerk is 
you don't realize that you, literally 10 weeks out from the day of the election, you start planning for that election mm-hmm. and all the things that go into it in terms of the ballot preparation and all of the things that are happening to make sure you have everything correct for the election. Like most folks don't see this um, in terms of, you know, not being behind the scenes watching all the preparation that happens. But um, I myself was probably guilty of you show up and you think, oh, I got a ballot. I vote. You don't think a whole lot about it. You don't th- about it. Um, realizing that literally it takes no less than 10 weeks to get ready for that election day in terms of all the prep that happens and all the things that take place to make sure you have enough election judges, make sure that you've got the ballot that's proper for the voters you're testing to make sure it's being tabulated correctly. That all takes time and it takes preparation. And so that's the part I love to share with people. Um, And they probably get a little bit bored hearing me about it, but that's the part I think about when your elections is you see that process, you see it work, um, and you see how people come in and make that work. And that's just a privilege to be able to do it. Well, I'm about to ask you the final question we ask all guests, but I do want one quick follow-up to to Don's question, and that is, uh, we've talked about it, you've also been a legislator, Mm -hmm. and that's something you did before you actually got into the the physical running of elections. Yes. Uh, Legislators, rightly so, make state law, make policy at the highest levels, and and, uh, election officials carry out those those laws and and follow those laws. Um, What would you say about the... uh, the role of both of those, the way that they can work together, the the dangers of uh, can't, certainly legislators all run for office. They know about elections right. in a certain way, but they might not know all of the inner workings of, of what you need to do to make an election happen when they're setting policy. So tell us a little bit about yourself as a legislator and, and maybe the, the type of coordination that would be best if you're really thinking about making the best kinds of election laws. Absolutely. Well, and that's, you know, as a, as a legislator in the state of Missouri, we meet um, through the middle of May. And so during that period of time, you're there basically from Monday afternoon till Thursday morning, sometimes early afternoon, then you leave through most of the session. So everything is compacted. And one of the things you try to do when you're a legislator is you try to learn as much as you can um, and make sure that you're prepared when the legislation comes to the floor, when it comes to your committee, when the amendments um, are being made. And I think one of the things that I've learned now as a county clerk is how critical it is that legislators understand what they're voting on, and especially now that elections have become a much bigger priority and focus in terms of when they're hearing from their constituents, those who are concerned, and then we try to explain to them, here's what's actually happening, come be part of that process. For example, when we went to choose our election equipment in 2018, before this was a huge focus from the public, I invited a bipartisan team of two of our legislators to come watch and observe the process in terms of, we we actually put together a committee of about 35 people in the county that came and got to see the different election equipment we were considering, they were part of that process, and I wanted them to be part of that process so that if they had questions when they were in Jefferson City, then they could help you know, answer those questions with their fellow legislators because I knew when I was there that was important to me. And that's the part that I think um, you know, some of the little bit of difference I've seen, I think, is that there's even a faster pace in Jefferson City and I think legislators across the state than even when I was in the legislature. And I, I constantly am asking fellow legislators who I serve with, you know, is it me? You know, because sometimes, you know, I think, well, when I was there, it was different. And I've even talked to people who are in Jefferson on a regular basis. And I think 
we've seen things sped up in terms of the reaction and the solution. And I think sometimes we need to sit back and make sure that we're not passing something into law that could end up being a challenge. Um, for example, in 2020, there was a couple things that were passed in the bill that expired at the end of that year that had they visited with the legislators would have made a lot more sense in terms of the execution administration of that. And so at that time, um, in my role as county clerk, I had really been encouraging us to have a bigger presence in Jefferson City. We've continued to increase that presence, and we've really seen a good outcome from that. And our legislature, I think, has done a good job of balancing that. Um, but it's on us as, as county clerks to make sure that we're in front of them saying, okay, these are things you need to consider. These are things you need to be aware of. And so that's where the relationship is critical. And for you know anyone, you know, we talked about at the very beginning, you know, know your legislator, know your local um, election authority, make sure that you're having conversations with both of them when you have concerns. And I think that is how we end up learning and, and, and not only learning, but being able to take that knowledge and improve. Final question. Uh, yes. You've been in elections for a while. What's the most humorous, unusual, or notable episode from your time in elections? Well, one of my favorite, and I, I'm going to go to the notable side, is that we have a young lady. I say young. She's been serving. I think this is going to be her 69th, if not 7th year serving. And I say 6970 as an election judge in our county. And so when um, it was... Uh, um, 2019, we recognized her for 65 years of service. And so um, when I think of people who are patriots, people who love their country, I think of Marjorie because, you know, she gets there at 5 in the morning. She stays there until the end of the night. Um, and she is really sharp. And the thing I love about Marjorie is she always wants me to come by her polling location because she's made vegetable soup. And she wants to make sure that I'm getting some lunch that day as I'm out and about. And so I always try to get by, um, assuming the day is not too busy, and get a chance to be able to eat her vegetable soup. She's just precious. And so when I hear people complain about it being too long of a day, I'm like, oh, no. Look at Marjorie because she doesn't complain ever about the experience. And she's just an example of just one of the great Americans who makes everything better because she loves our country and she loves being there during the day of the election. Shane Scholler, clerk of Greene County, Missouri, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hung Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.